following message was recorded at Spirit and Truth, the 2019 Clearing Up Shepherds Conference, presented by Warhorn Media. This session is titled, Worship in Heaven, and was given by the Reverend Jody Killingsworth. Jody is the Associate Pastor of Worship at Clearnote Church in Bloomington, Indiana. He has a Master's of Philosophy in Music Performance from the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester, England. I'm honored this evening to have been asked to speak to you about worship in heaven. Jonathan Edwards once preached a sermon to his Northampton congregation called Heaven, a World of Love. It's based on the final verses of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. In that sermon, Edwards argued that since heaven is a world that is characterized by love, infused with love, not only should we very much desire to go there, but we should bear witness here and now by love that we are its rightful citizens. That logic, as far as I can tell, is impeccable, very biblical. We're going to try following a similar line of reasoning tonight as we consider worship in heaven. There is much about the new heavens and the new earth that isn't known or that can be known. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. When God hasn't revealed something to us, Scripture calls that a secret thing. And Moses in Deuteronomy says that secret things belong to the Lord. And we just stop our curiosity right there. But Moses goes on to say that the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And that means that we're obligated to know those things, to study them, and to put them to use in our life. Well, just as God has revealed that one of heaven's principal attributes is love, so has he revealed that one of its principal pastimes or activities, occupations, is worship. Praise, and especially sung praise, is what we see the saints occupied with in the Bible's descriptions of the heavenly world. This is so much the case that it would be accurate for us to say that heaven is a world of song. This evening we're going to do three things. First, we're going to establish that heaven is a world of song, as we see how prominently praise features in the Bible's descriptions of that place. Second, we're going to consider why heaven is described for us as a world of song, and then what this means for our lives here and now. So first, heaven is a world of song. The primary descriptions we have of heaven, of course, are found in the book of Revelation. You can turn there now to chapter 5. We're going to read five passages from that book. And in these five passages, these are the five passages in Revelation that show activity on the part of the glorified saints. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders... I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So present here in this first scene are every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, every created thing. And what are they all doing? Each in their turn and in their way is praising their creator with song. These passages all describe scenes of praise, but as we go on, you'll notice that they don't all make say explicitly that the praises being described are sung praises. Sometimes John prefaces what he heard with, they said, or they were saying, or they were crying out with a loud voice. There's good reason, though, to think that John is describing singing when he says this. Scripture frequently prefaces poetic utterances, which we know were sung, with terms like said or saying. A prime example of this is Mary's Magnificat, Mary's song in Luke 1. The Magnificat, which is universally understood, well, universally understood in church history to have been a song because of how much in the style of the Old Testament Psalms it is and even quotes the Psalms, is prefaced this way. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. There's a more explicit example of this in the Psalms themselves. The preface to Psalm 18 reads, for the choir director, a Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song, in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, and he said, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. There are many other examples we could point to, but one of the best ones is right here in the passage we just read. In verse 9 of chapter 5, John says, And they sang a new song, saying... And so this is why I believe that most or all of the exclamations of praise that John recounts for us here in Revelation are records of songs that he heard sung. Let's go on to the next scene, Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Here again, it's the people at praise, the people at song that John was shown. Each time he sees them, it's the same. Revelation 14 is our next passage verses 1 to 5 then i looked and behold on mount zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads and i heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder the voice i heard 
was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Revelation 15, 1-4. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not, who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And then lastly, Revelation 19, 1-6. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So these are the passages in Revelation in which we see depicted the glorified saints in their heavenly occupation. And almost the sole activity we see them doing or performing here is singing praise to God. Apart from this, we hardly see them do anything else. Does this mean that all we will do in heaven is stand before the throne and sing for all eternity? Is there anybody here brave enough to admit that they find that a little unsatisfying? I find it hard to accept it might be of some encouragement to you to know that if you feel that way, if you've been tempted to think that, then you're in good company. Jonathan Edwards, in another sermon about this topic of singing in heaven, says this, We have but a very imperfect knowledge of the future state of blessedness and of the saints' employment. Without doubt, they have various employments there. We cannot reasonably question, but they are employed in contributing to each other's delight. They shall dwell together in society. They shall also probably be employed in contemplating on God, his glorious perfections and glorious works, and so gaining knowledge in these things, studying. And doubtless they will be employed in many ways that we know nothing of. But this we may determine, 
that much of their employment consists in praising God. So I think it's I think intuition, reason leads us to agree with Edwards that likely, probably, almost certainly, undoubtedly, there will be other things that we do, productive things, interesting things. We will, we will throw dinner parties, we'll study, there will be things to do. But nonetheless, we have to face the fact that when the, what the Bible, what the Holy Spirit has focused our attention on about heaven is that the saints sing praise to God. Heaven is a world of song. So now we need to consider why is heaven described for us as a world of song. Scripture describes heaven as a world of unceasing song, I believe, to reinforce the fact that heaven is a world of unending joy. The book of Revelation is written as an encouragement to saints in the midst of trials and struggles temptations, calling them to have hope, to focus their attention on Christ's coming kingdom and on his triumph over all his enemies and the joys that await them. There's a beautiful summation of the joys that await us in heaven found in Revelation chapter 7. Just listen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know, And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that a wonderful, hopeful thing? The saints in heaven are those who have been delivered out of the great tribulation, the troubles of this present life, never to suffer never to fear, never to feel pain, never to struggle, never to feel the effects of sin again. Delivered out of tribulation, sheltered forever from every enemy and every harm by the presence of God. Shepherded, led to streams of living water, tasting of the river of God's delights, standing in the presence of the Lord in whose presence there is pleasure forever. This will be their eternal and happy condition. And we will not be able to stop singing about it. Singing and joy are connected. There is a natural and a clear connection between joy and song. Nature and experience teaches this, but we see it in Scripture also. In James chapter 5, verse 13, he says, Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Song is the natural God-intended overflow of a merry and a happy heart. If in this world, then also or especially in the world to come. Once a glorified saint is set free from its fallen state and tastes fully of the riches and the satisfaction and the delight and the joy of heaven, there will be no end to its desire to sing about it. Song is a gift from God intended to give us an appropriate way to respond to 
the glorious and wondrous, mysterious, beautiful and joyful things of God. Our first father, Adam, discovered this gift of song in himself, by instinct it would seem, back in the Garden of Eden before the fall. When there was not a helper found suitable for him, God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and taking a rib from his side, he fashioned it into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said that this is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Maybe it's a stretch to call it a song. But all the major translators have set it apart as some sort of poetic utterance, something higher than normal speech. And so it's at least has those poetic aspects to it that are very much akin to song. So maybe at, at, at the very least, it's like proto-song. But there it is. And ever since that time, song has functioned as the principal mode by which we are given to respond in wonder and delight at the goodness of God and the mysteries of life. And what a wonderful gift singing is. But there's more to, to song than that. Not only is it a way of expressing joy, but it's also a means for increasing joy. It's, after all, very pleasurable to sing. Here's what John Calvin taught concerning the purpose of music in the preface to the Genevan Psalter. He wrote, Now among the things which are proper for recreating man and giving him pleasure... Music is either the first or one of the principal, and it is necessary for us to think that it is a gift of God deputed for that use. So music and song have a pleasure-giving capacity. It's a way of expressing delight and a way of getting delighted. This is why it's possible to experience pleasure, even very great pleasure, from singing about trouble and woes. It's why the blues works as a genre. Music in its pleasure-giving capacity helps make difficult things easier to bear. Music is cathartic. It gives release to emotions, strong emotions that we carry inside of us that have no way of escape other than song. Music is cathartic. Music is ecstatic. Ecstatic is a word that its root means to be out of body or to, to, to come out of oneself, to be out of place. And music can give us this really profound sense, especially at times, of being lifted up above our troubles, out of ourselves, into some other plane. This is why music is widely recognized, and increasingly recognized, to have very therapeutic power and use. The people of God have a long history of, music, of using music this way. In uh, Psalm 137, they, they, the Israelites, or the Levites, sang this song or wrote this song, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So their captors demanded of them the songs of Zion. Entertain us with the songs of Zion. They refused to do that. Instead, what do they do? They write a song about it. And it becomes one of the Lord's songs. And King David also, in the Psalms, was often lifting himself out of his troubles, lifting his heart and his soul to God in prayer through song. 
And this just reinforces what we know to be true, that music is a very potent tool for ministry. Can it be abused? Oh, yeah. Just because of its power, music can be greatly abused. Whenever we look to music to do for us only what God can do for us, we've made an idol out of it. The Apostle Paul asks in Romans 7.24, Who will set me free from the body of this death? And even though music is very powerful and used of God, intended for our help spiritually to help lift us to heaven and has this incredible transcendent power inherent in it, the answer that Paul gives is not, thanks be to God through music or through singing, but thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Music is transcendent, music is cathartic, music is powerful, but music is not God. It is completely hopeless as a mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, I'm not one of the people that thinks that in order to be godly, music has to always be about God. I think there's lots of purposes for music that are what we would call secular or recreational. Just because God wrote a book does not mean there are no other books in this world worth reading or that all other books are inherently sinful. When God uses something, it does not necessarily invalidate its use elsewhere. By, By God's design, there are many legitimate secular recreational uses for music, many topics for song other than divinity. And yet God has given us music as a powerful aid to spiritual life, and we should be jealous to see it used that way as much as possible, just as we would always want to see the Bible read before Moby Dick. Music has this incredible power to cheer us up, to help us lift our hearts to God so we can lay hold of his blessings. Now, here's the point that I'm trying to make. If it can do that for us here and now, surrounded as we are through, by so many troubles and sorrows and difficulties. Think what it can do when we're, only, when we're surrounded only by joys. The saints in heaven will sing because they're so filled with joy at the delights of heaven, and they will sing to get more joy. It's, on the flip side, worth contemplating that there will be no singing in hell. In all the descriptions we have of hell, there is no indication of any music, but rather this. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a place of unmitigated suffering and torment. Music now partly serves to make difficult things easier to bear. It's cathartic. It helps mediate the sufferings and troubles of life. And as such, it's a common grace, part of that rain that God causes to fall on the just and the unjust. But in hell, it's different. There's no grace at all in hell. In hell, there will be no grace. There will be misery and suffering without relief. If the rich man in the count of Dives and Lazarus wasn't allowed a drop of water on his tongue, then he certainly won't be allowed to whistle a tune. Now, that's not, I mean, that's, I don't know how to get it across, but music is a way in which we, we mediate suffering. We turn on Spotify to get through the tedium of a day. It's just what we do with music, and music's a gift from God for that use, that it will not be allowed as a relief to the damned. Now, that knowledge should trouble us. It should trouble us, first of all, about ourselves, even ourselves as pastors and leaders and be a motivation, another of many motivations to, to 
get ourselves right with God and to question whether we, which country is our country. Of course, hell is what we deserve. But if there was ever something to sing about, it's this. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. He has not dealt with us as our, according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. We, of all people, ought to be singers. We have such hope, such undeserved love and mercy from God. Such abundant, glorious promises. Christians should of all people be singers. Since heaven is a world of song, all who have a hope of heaven ought to be singers. This life is the anteroom, the preparatory, the entryway, the vestibule to heaven. We are to live our lives in this world in such a way as to be ready for the next. The 17th century poet, John Donne, expressed this truth in musical terms when he writes, Since I am coming to that holy room, where with thy choir of saints forevermore I shall be made thy music, as I come, I tune the instrument here at the door. And what I must do then, think here before. I'm going to read it one more time. Since I am coming to that holy room, where with thy choir of saints forevermore, I shall be made thy music. As I come, I tune the instrument here at the door. And what I must do then, think here before. Are you tuning your instrument here at the door? Now, of course, it has a vast meaning, what he's just written, and a, focuses on the duty or calls us to the, the work of sanctification in our lives, full-orbed, all everywhere. But it's helpful to think in musical terms as we think about preparing ourselves for the next world. It's helpful to, as we see the occupation of the saints so focused on worship and praise, to ask ourselves, what, what, how are we doing? Are we, as Edwards talks about oh, heaven, a world of love, and he, and he says we should bear witness here and now by love that we are citizens of heaven, do we exhibit that we are citizens of heaven by how we sing, by how we worship? What would it mean to tune our instrument here at the door? Well, the first and most basic thing it means is that we should all be singers. By God's appointment, we're not only to praise him or, yeah, praise him with our prayers, but are also to sing his praises. Singing was part of divine worship in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Christ and his disciples praised together in the upper room. They sang hymns. The Apostle Paul commands the church, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And so too the glorified saints in heaven, as we've seen, are represented as occupied constantly in that work of praise. The neglect of singing, then, is highly discordant with a Christian profession. You can learn a lot about your people I'm speaking to pastors, leaders, shepherds here. 
we can learn a lot of pe- about our people by observing how they worship the Lord. It is an interesting vantage point that I have of our congregation on a Sunday morning. A neglect of singing is highly discordant with a Christian profession. Nevertheless, there are many in the church who neglect it. Have you noticed that there is a dearth of singing in the church today? There are many instances, both in traditional and contemporary services alike, where we see at best a half-hearted, disinterested mumbling on the part of God's people. There are plenty of songs in the service, but the people are hardly engaged with them. Even in churches with generally good singing, all of us can think of someone or someones who refuse to enter in or participate. Is there anybody here not dissatisfied with the state of singing in their church? There might be. Oh, that's great. If we wanted, though, assuming that we are all somewhat dissatisfied with the state of things, and I think we should be, as we look at the intensity and the sheer constancy of praising in in heaven, I think we should be somewhat dissatisfied with the state of things here below, the state of things in our churches and our lives. And if we wanted to improve them, what would we do? In order to see our singing improve, we first need to identify what it is we're aiming at. Not everybody agrees with what constitutes or about what constitutes good singing. Defining this wrong can lead us to placing unnecessary and discouraging burdens on people, can lead us to confusing the church's mission with the mission of the music school. What is good? What is good singing? How would we, by what standard do we judge it? Who decides? It's not that we shouldn't have high expectations for our singing. We should have, must have high expectations for our singing, but we need to make sure that those expectations are high in the right way or in the right place. What is the standard, the benchmark of good singing according to Scripture? Well, from the scenes of heaven that we've just read, what would we say is the benchmark? I think more than anything else, it's this. If we were going to tune our voices and the voices of our churches up to the pitch of heaven, what pitch would that be? In Revelation 7.10, John hears the glorified saints crying out with a loud voice. In Revelation 14.5, John says he heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. In Revelation 19, he describes hearing the loud voice of a great multitude crying out. And in 19.6, he likens what he heard to mighty peals of thunder. The pitch of heaven is fever pitch. It's loud. It's earth-shattering window-rattling loud. We're about 100 people here, so I'm told from the registration list. If we wanted to sound like mighty peals of thunder, could we do it? Maybe not. It's a tall order. We could get closer to that than we have yet if that was our goal. If we saw that as the thing that we're aiming at and aspiring to. Loudness in worship is an unqualified good in Scripture. Psalm 47, 1 to 2. Oh, clap your hands, O people. Shout to God with the voice of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared 
a great king over all the earth. This is not an exceptional statement. There are many more exhortations to loud and joyful shouting in the Psalms. And the reason given for the joy, for the zeal, for the shouting, is most often the holiness, the majesty, the glory, the authority, the judgments, and the mighty deeds of God. I remember when I was new to Reformed theology. Maybe you know the type of the young man who comes in to embracing the authority and the sovereignty of God in all things and in salvation, and then concludes from that that gloominess is next to godliness or stoicism. How would God have us show reverence for him? Psalm 98, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. If the Israelites shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded when the ark was brought into Jerusalem, how much more should our worship be filled with shouting, with volume, with loudness? Do we exhibit this in our worship? What excuses do people normally give for not singing out in church? Some people say, oh, I'm not much of a singer. I'm tone deaf. I don't have a voice like other people have. You know, you don't want to hear me sing. Now, there really are those of us who struggle with their voices. What can be done for them? I actually would recommend to you this approach, which was used by William Law, the uh, 17th or 18th century, I think, uh, Anglican cleric. He wrote a book called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. Is a more pastoral approach. He said, You will perhaps say that singing is a particular talent that belongs only to particular people and that you have neither voice nor ear to make any music. If you had said that singing is a general talent and that people differ in it as they do in other things, you had said something much truer. Everyone at some time or other finds himself able to sing in some degree There are some times and occasions of joy that make all people ready to express their sense of it in some sort of harmony. The joy that they feel forces them to let their voice have a part in it. Have you heard the expression, no man is a hypocrite in his pleasures? No one's a hypocrite when it comes to the place of their joy. Where we, you find a man where he's most joyful and you will find a man who's shouting and singing using his voice in an outgoing way. Zeal and joy and vigor in worship is a given. It's it's what you'll be zealous and joyful and vigorous and extroverted about. That's the question. Law goes on. It gets even more helpful. Imagine to yourself that you had been with Moses when he was led through the Red Sea that you had seen the waters divide themselves and stand up on a heap on both sides and that you had seen them held up until you had passed through, then let fall upon your enemies. Do you think that you should then have wanted a voice or an ear to have sung with Moses? The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. I know your own heart tells you that all people must have been singers upon such an occasion. Let this therefore teach you that it is the heart 
that tunes a voice to sing the praises of God, and that if you cannot sing the same words now with joy, it is because you are not so affected with the salvation of the world by Jesus Christ as the Jews were, or you yourself would have been with their deliverance at the Red Sea. Now, I I actually do commend that to you, pastors, elders, as a way of admonishing your people to sing out. Because what it does is it points out our hypocrisy. God wants us all to be singers. Remember, the neglect of singing is very discordant with a Christian profession. Another excuse that's given is... And it's more of a prejudice than an excuse is that singing's for sissies. Singing's just not manly. Now, men won't come right out and say this, but you can observe some men, and in observing them, you suspect that they have this assumption deep in their DNA that to sing is somehow to be unmanly, that to, to sing out. To use my voice loudly in, in worship is, to, is somehow beneath me in my dignity as a man. How should we deal with this when we see it? Well, if you find this, and you will find this often about young teenage boys, and you might just want to go right at them about it. Just come up to them and, and, and say, boys, I can tell that you think that singing is, is beneath you. Well, I want you to know that you're dead wrong. King David, when he was just a boy, was killing lions and bears with his bare hands out in the field. He walked out onto a field with a little stone and sling, and he slew a giant, cut off his head, and then later was lauded by Israel um, as having killed ten thousands of God's enemies. And while he was doing that, do you know what scripture, or looking back on his life, you know what scripture calls him? The sweet psalmist of Israel. While he was doing all this, he was writing the book of Psalms, And he played the harp. And he went out before God's people in joyful procession, dancing. That's manly, boys. That's what you're to do. You're wrong. And I want to see improvement. You can do that with a young man. (laughs) This approach to trying to goad people, shame people into singing only works if the songs that you're calling them to engage in are manly. And this is a big problem in the church today. The church today is filled with sentimentality, eroticism in its, in its modes of expression and in its forms of worship. This is especially true of contemporary Christian music, but it's also been true in the hymn tradition. And it's not like there's not room for the feminine <laughs> in our language, in our expression, in our worship. But it should not be the defining characteristic. Worship, our songs should not be gay. What I mean by gay is they should not be soft. The church is not to be a soft place. Meek, humble, tender, but not soft. Worship ought to and will unseat us in our pride, but it should not unman us. Solomon describes the church mystically in the book of Psalms as being terrible as an army with banners. And the psalmist connects the singing of the church explicitly to warfare when he writes, let the godly ones exult in glory, let them sing for joy on their beds, let the high praises of God be in their mouth 
and a two-edged sword in their hands to execute vengeance in the, on the nations and punishment on the peoples. The songs of heaven are very much in a militaristic strain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's a victor's song. That's a song that you use to praise your champion. The song of Moses that was mentioned explicitly as sung in heaven in Revelation 15 extols God as a mighty warrior and is built upon the refrain, the horse and rider he's thrown into the sea. When we get to heaven, as we've said before, the fight will be over. And yet the song celebrating the victory of that fight and the conquest of our Lord will go on and on and on. We will continue to extol Christ's victory and triumph over the forces of darkness forever. If war will be our theme then, it certainly should be our theme now. The Christian life is a life of battle. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. The apostle Paul commands us to fight the good fight of faith, taking up spiritual weapons of warfare in order to tear down strongholds and every lofty thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We have a battle within ourselves, the terrible, violent, difficult work of mortifying sin in the flesh. We have a battle without a constant renunciation, denial of this world against much opposition and also the very difficult work of caring for God's flock. We need songs that are going to call us to battle and give us and renew our, what would I say? Give us the nerve, stir us up to do this great, difficult, awful, bloody work of the Christian life. Our worship should give us strength for a, for a spiritual fight should rouse us to the battle. I was really encouraged and helped this past Sunday. Pastor Tim taught us that men used to go into battle shouting. And why do they do it? Not, to, not so much to intimidate their enemies as to intimidate themselves, to steal themselves for the difficult, awful work of dying. How, there was no other way to to go into battle than to just scream. <laughs> Can you imagine? You think of two armies just running at each other and you have no idea what's going to happen. You can only assume that you're almost certainly to die. Just, just like that. Worship songs should serve as our battle cry. They should be at once a call to arms and a way by which Christians strengthen their resolve to die daily. Our hymnals used to be filled with songs that accomplished this. The Son of God goes forth to war. Lead on, O King Eternal. The day of march has come. Am I a soldier of the cross? Stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. Lift high the cross. Onward, Christian soldiers. This is a real constant theme in good old hymnody. Songs like these once commonplace have largely disappeared from the songbook of God's people. Part of the feminization of the church, I prefer to call it the emasculation of the church that's been going on for decades. 
As church musicians and pastors, we've been working here to bring back some of those songs, put them to use again in the church. We've also been working to reclaim the book of Psalms, the lost practice of psalm singing. All the themes that are necessary for fighting the good fight of faith are there in the Psalms. You've got conflict, enemies, weapons, struggles, tauntings, betrayals, power, judgment, law, fear, boasting, forgiveness, everything needed to keep God and spiritual life really interesting to a man and very good for everybody. So I commend psalm singing to you. It's probably one of the most helpful reforms you could introduce into the DNA of your church today. And it have a profound and immediate influence on everything, all the way down to the decorations. I mean, if you're going to start singing psalms in worship, buckle up. It's, we have the psalms, people, they're widely read. You go, and that's been the case all through history. The psalms are like the go-to place for devotional reading. So they're widely read and known. But there is nothing like singing them. That's because you have to... You're forced now to join body and soul in agreement with the words that you're professing. And that is difficult to do with the Psalms. There are so many challenges to our assumptions about, about spirituality, about life, about godliness in the, in the book of Psalms. The masculine piety expressed in the Psalms will challenge everyone and everything in your church. And it will bring about lots of good. You'll suddenly have to, if you're a preacher, you'll have to evaluate your preaching up against the manliness of David and the zeal that suddenly is inspired in God's people. This is true unless you undercut the ministry of the Psalms and good old hymns by how you present them or how they're led. I've seen this happen too. I cannot overstate the importance of manly leadership in worship. We are creatures, social creatures, made to learn by example as much as by teaching. So much of godliness has to be caught, not just taught. And it is vital that the people who are visibly leading us and setting the example for us of what it means to worship God, to fight the good fight, are visible, are encouraged, let loose in the church. God has vested his fatherly glory in men. This is why the Apostle Paul exhorts Christian men to stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. And this glory of God in men is to be on display in worship for the good of all. We must not allow this glory of God in men to be repressed. How are we in danger of repressing it? Well, I'm just going to give you three ways. There's lots of ways. I hope you think of ways and we can talk about it. Here's three ways that I thought of that we tend to repress men in the church, particularly in worship. We repress men and the glory of God vested in men in worship when we put women up to lead them. So many of the obvious things have to be said. I mean, they're silly and ridiculous to say, but 
They have to be said. They don't go without saying. And one of them is this. Men are not made to follow women. They're not happy when men, women are put up in front of them to lead them. Whereas women generally are happy when men are taking initiative and lead. Please do not put a woman up in front of me when I come to your church to lead me. Now, I'm not, it's not an absolute thing. There is a place for women in the worship of the church, but they better not be the focal point. They, it, you can make this clear or you can fuse it, confuse it in many ways. And typically the way it's done is there's a, there's a group of three and two of them are women and one of them's gay. <laughs> and it's the women who are mixed louder than the man or one of them in particular and it's their voice that's leading and they're all here in the center and the man's on the end. He's not even in the middle. I've seen this so many times. You've probably seen it as well. We must be very careful about how we present our leadership and that we must be very zealous to protect the clear leadership of a manly man, a zealous man, men who will inspire zeal in the congregation and particularly in the men of the congregation. Because why? If you get the men singing, you get everybody singing. It's just, it is just the way it works. If fathers, you are potent in your home. Everyone takes their cues from you. A father of a family in worship, you, you just, I watch this every Sunday. You see the, the children following their father. They never tend to rise above their father's zeal. Pastor, elder, you are very potent in worship and people take note of you. And if you are not zealous for God, your congregation will not be zealous for God. If you don't sing out with your voice, your people aren't likely to either. But I got to give you this example. This is one of the best defenses of masculine piety that I have ever encountered. And it comes from George Ives, the father of American composer Charles Ives. He had a man in his church by the name of John Bell. John Bell was a stonemason and notorious for singing out a little too loudly and a little too off-key in church. John Bell, stonemason, vigorous singer. And George Ives defended Mr. Bell to a fellow church member who complained about Bell's raucous and off-key singing by saying, don't pay too much attention to the sounds. If so, you'll miss the music. You won't get a heroic ride to heaven on pretty little sounds. There's a thousand ways we can do this, but we must carve out space in our worship for manly men to feel safe, to lead, to not be repressed or oppressed. And there's all kinds of people who want to repress masculinity today. I mean, it, there's no lack of... We, we, men, men know that they're not supposed to let their glory, the glory of God, show itself. And that's, that goes for church as well. That is completely counterproductive to the mission of, preparing, of tuning ourselves here at the door for heaven. We repress the glory of God in men when we put women up to lead us. We repress the glory of God in men when the tunes and the musical arrangements are soft, when they should be strong. Music in church is precious. It's, it's way too precious, generally. It's dainty. 
it's refined, it's safe, and it really should be more raucous. I'm not saying you have to have a rock band. It should be more raucous, however you're doing it. Because the themes, the themes are glorious and great, impossibly so. And the music should be in agreement with these great and glorious and awful themes. And music, when it's too refined and too dainty and too careful and too neat, too nice, is repressive to men. We repress the, go- the glory of God in men in worship when we place too high a value on niceness and decorum. There should be space created for men to be zealous and to lead zealously in worship, even if that comes at the cost of a certain quality. It is way more important to inspire zeal in the congregation. I'm all for a skillful song. Who, who's not, for goodness sake? Who's not for excellence? But we want excellence as God defines it. And I think the Scripture puts so much clear emphasis on zeal and on volume. And we don't put the same emphasis in our churches typically. Let me sum up. Heaven is a world of song. Heaven is a world of song because it's a world of joy. And song is a way of expressing joy and a way of getting more joy. And heaven has an infinite supply. And singing is just going to be a tremendous tool. It's just going to flow out of us all the time. I'm convinced of it. All who have a hope of heaven should be singers. And the way, practically today, we restore to the church the singing that is anything like what it will be for us in heaven is by getting men singing again. If we get men singing, we will get everybody singing. We'll get the children, we'll get the wives, we'll get everybody. We need to find ways of engaging men in worship. You don't get a heroic ride to heaven on pretty little sounds. This has been a presentation of Warhorn Media. For more information, please visit warhornmedia.com and welcome to the Reformation. Reformation.